Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Samuel 17, verses 2 through 8, 20, 32 through 36, and 48 through 49. This is the word of God. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, And he was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why have you come out to draw up for battle?' Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. Verse 20. And David rose early in the morning, and left the sheep with a keeper, and took the provisions, and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. Verse 32. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for King David that we can see you in him. Speak to us this morning through your word. Help me to not be an impediment to what you have to say to your people this morning. In your son's name we pray, amen. The movie Hoosiers is a widely acknowledged uh, is widely acknowledged as one of the best sports films of all time, I think, in my house anyway. It's up there with Rudy and uh, the greatest game ever played. 
Hoosiers is the story of a uh, disgraced college basketball coach who's lucky to find a job coaching at a rural Indiana high school in the 1950s after being accused of cheating. High school basketball in the 1950s in Indiana is similar to high school football in Texas in the 1990s. It's, it was everything. Gene Hackman plays the coach, and the main storyline follows an average high school basketball team that whips into disciplined shape and that he takes to the state championship against a much larger and much stronger team. Before the championship game, the school chaplain is in the locker room with the team, and he prays for the team, and he kind of matter-of-factly, perfunctorily recites the story of David and Goliath. And I love how he says, and David took out a stone from his sling and slung it, and giant fell dead. And the chaplain invoked that prayer, obviously, in the context of their basketball game. They were David. The stronger and better team was Goliath. In the writer's room when Hoosiers was being written, the director had a sign on the wall that read, this is not a basketball movie. He wanted the writers to remember that this story was about redemption, not about basketball. It's the story of how Gene Hackman found redemption through his own discipline and humility in a small town in Indiana. It's the story of how one of the starting player's dads struggled with alcoholism and finally redeemed his relationship with his son within the context of basketball as he was on the team. It's the story of how a town that had suffered defeat after defeat in their economy and their society was redeemed by the actions of their high school basketball team. Hoosiers is not a basketball movie. Neither is the story of David and Goliath a motivational story for us to overcome our own demons with just enough faith and vinegar and cleverness and maybe a little bit of luck. The story of David and Goliath is a story of redemption. It's the story of how the maker of the universe and all it contains humbled himself to become one of his own creatures, enduring humiliation and suffering, and all that inheres from human limitation, and against all odds, defeated our great enemy, the Satan, on our behalf, so that we could enjoy that victory vicariously and imitated in our own lives. Today we're looking at probably one of the most iconic stories from this period in history. Everybody knows David and Goliath. It's inspired millions of people around the world, probably wrongly, in that wrong context that I'm saying it's not about that. That's nevertheless the basis for motivation. We have an unquestionably bad character in Goliath, He's got huge weapons. His, his, the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, like this. He, he, he was taunting and harassing the good guys for unprovoked. And we have the humble shepherd who's not even young enough to serve in the military. And he shows up and immediately wants to solve the problem and confront this evil nuisance. 
And I think if David, if this story took place in Texas, I think somebody would have come alongside him and said, oh, David, bless your heart. (laughs) But in a show of extreme bravery, he does confront Goliath. And he kills him with what seems to be an incredibly lucky shot from his slingshot, which was not a weapon of war, by the way, and defeats uh, and defeats the giant and defends the honor of his nation and of his God. So I have in the outline today two categories of things that David, as a character in the Bible and as an actual historical person, represents to us through this story. He's an example, first, of a servant leader with unwavering faith in God. And second, he's an exemplar of the coming Christ, displaying himself as a type of Christ, pointing us to the coming Christ Jesus. So let's look at the first one, David's example to us. Let's look again at uh, verses 22 through 27. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, the things that he, his dad told him to bring to the front lines for his brothers, and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. This was the 40th time he had done this, by the way. (laughs) They were still afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So so shall it be done to the man who kills him. He'll get prize money. And uh, he won't have to pay taxes for the rest of his life. And uh, his family won't have to serve in the military, and he'll get a wife. We live in a city with no fewer than six professional sports teams. We have the Broncos. We have the Avalanche. We have the Rockies, the Rapids, the Nuggets, and the Outlaws. And then we have our college teams. Two great football programs, CU and CSU, a national hockey, a national championship hockey team at DU. There's plenty to be a fan of and to root for. And if you're a devoted fan of one of these and someone insults the honor of one of your teams, you feel a little slighted. How could they say that about my beloved abs? We have the Stanley Cup, don't you know? Well, that must have been a small degree, or at least how David's indignation may have been perceived among the ranks of Israel's army. Nonetheless, David felt how arrogant, how blasphemous. Who does this guy think that he is? David's perspective here, though, wasn't just because he was a big fan of Israel's army. It was completely oriented toward God and God's law, 
even at about 17 years old. When something deviated from God's intended order for things, and if David had the chance to put it right, he would put it right. David was a man after God's own heart because he saw things from God's perspective. We can see that in the Psalms that he wrote. We heard this morning from someone read Psalm 8. That was David's perspective. This is the answer to why a teenaged David confronted a nine foot four tall giant. It's the reason that David later wouldn't kill King Saul when he had the chance, when Saul was hunting him in the wilderness. It's the reason David went and made a priority to take back the Ark of the Covenant from Israel's enemies. These were all the result of his perspective being oriented correctly. God's glory and holiness is a top priority to God, and David knew that. Goliath was taunting God. That's not okay. Goliath was taunting God's armies for over a month. David knew that God cared about the holiness of his name and his reputation, and David rose to be Israel's hero. The Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of God's presence with his chosen people, and Saul had used it as a weapon, and it had been taken from Israel in battle as a result. David knew God's priorities and got it back. David refused to kill King Saul when Saul was literally hunting him in the wilderness because Saul was the anointed king of Israel whom God had anointed. Who was David to lift up his hand against God's anointed? If God wanted Saul dead, David thought, God would make Saul dead. It's not up to me. Once your viewpoint, your perspective, your worldview is correctly oriented, your priorities begin to change. And that's what we see in David, and that's what we should imitate. There's an important principle in life and leadership illustrated by uh, big rocks and pebbles trying to fit them in a jar, and you have to do it in the right order. It goes something like this. If you have a, a jar and enough large rocks to fit in the jar, and then you have also some pebbles, uh, you should put the large rocks into the jar first, because the large rocks represent your big priorities. And the little rocks, the pebbles, represent all, this, all the stuff that would be nice to get done, but it's not a big deal if they don't. So the, the uh, illustration is meant to show if you put the pebbles in first, the large rocks won't fit. And so you won't accomplish the things in life or the things on your team or whatever this illustration is meant to be used for. The large rocks won't fit in. And so you have to put the large rocks in first. You have to orient your perspective correctly first and then let the pebbles come in after that. So how do we do that? We have to first learn like David did and then meditate on truths about God like David did. We have to know what God cares about. And those things have to concern us too. 
David wrote that he meditated on the law of the Lord day and night. He was constantly pondering the laws that God put into place and the motives behind those laws. So we don't have to do as deep of a dive as David had to do. We have the benefit of, well, if David is here, we have the benefit of all of this. And the letters of Paul and David's Psalms, applying history and law and truth to daily life. So we don't have to do as hard a work. But even David, with what little he had, the five books of the law, David could see the holiness of God reflected in the laws he gave Moses for the construction of the tabernacle and the clothing and the behaviors for priests. He could see the love of God reflected in his relationship with Moses. David could see the power and the sovereignty of God in the story of the exodus from Egypt. He could see the faithfulness of God in the story of Abraham. And he could see the character of God in the story of Job, which he also likely had. These are the things that he meditated on. Let's meditate on these things together and ask the Holy Spirit to reorient our perspectives to align with his priorities. Let's turn to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Oh, Lord, how our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How great is the God we worship. How wonderful it is that the almighty being who created the sun, the moon, the stars, the multitude of solar systems beyond ours thinks of and cares for us little humans. That he knows the minutia of our lives and cares about us individually. Not, not only that he cares about us, but he loves us deeper than any human could and with a more perfect and selfless love. He didn't have to create humans. He didn't have to do anything. But out of his love and out of his desire to create a people for himself, he made us. He gave us moral choices and a will he gave us an ability to appreciate beauty and to create art. All of these things point back 
to him and his power and his creative ability and his holiness. Turn back a few pages to Psalm 2. In my Bible, it doesn't say a Psalm of David here. Um, But I think it is. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. He's speaking of Christ. And the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Think of the image that's, that we have from these two psalms together. Our God laughs at the rulers of the earth who defy him and his authority and his wisdom like they were powerful, like they have some authority. What did Jesus say? You don't have any authority, but that was given to you from above. He told that to Caesar. Those who think they can defy the living God will face an unpleasant reality. And if we agree with the rulers who shake their fists at God in indignation and take control of our own lives and live how we see fit, we will also be in for an ugly reality. Turn with me to Psalm 11, our final psalm here. titled, The Lord is in His Holy Temple. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They've fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup, for the Lord loves the righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Do you hear, (laughs) could you imagine the, the armies of Israel saying, hear what we have in the first Three verses. Uh, the Philistines flee like a bird to the mountain. They've bent their bow. They've fitted their arrow to the string. They're going to get us. But David says, and he writes here, this is a psalm of David. The Lord is in his holy temple. 
You have no reason to fear. God is concerned with his glory and with his relationship with his creatures. To those who run to him, he's a refuge. He's a strong tower, a savior, a provider. To those who run from him, who defy his authority and shake their fists at him and love wickedness, he will be an all-consuming fire. Who are we that God is mindful of us, that he cares for us? Who are we to spurn his initiative love, to think ourselves wiser than he? David knew anyone who thinks they can defy the living God is mistaken. That was David's perspective as he hears Goliath spouting this garbage on the battlefield. And we should imitate his perspective. David's, David's perspective, not Goliath's. The second characteristic of David we should imitate is his unbending, absolute faith in God. Look at verses 32 through 37 with me. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of Goliath, because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him, but you're, you're but a youth. He's been a man of war from his youth. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. When there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, and I struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. David was completely confident that God would help him defeat this blasphemer and defend God's glory and name and reputation. There doesn't appear to have been a doubt in David's mind. He, of course, would have had to have been very brave to, con- to have confronted lions and bears, um, apparently multiple times. Those are plural nouns. God used that same bravery to motivate David to confront this beast. I agree with a commentator who said David was likely empowered by the Holy Spirit to defeat those lions and bears. And David knew that whatever strength he had then, he will have now to defeat this dragon. We'll get there in a sec. We're called to have the same faith that David had. Although we don't live in the theocracy that was ancient Israel and we don't fight neighboring armies expressly for the fulfillment of God's own promises to us, we do have a different set of promises as Christians in which we can place the same total faith and trust. I'm not going to exhaust the promises of God here this morning um, as, those, as though those could be listed. But first, we can have total faith and trust 
that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins and that we have no need to have any guilt for any sin that we've committed that has been forgiven. That is a promise. If God says it is forgiven, it is forgiven. Romans 5 and 6 discuss these principles in detail. And we're not to use our forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ as, as an excuse to continue to sin, obviously, but to be motivated by the grace that we've received to love God better, to put away our selfish and sinful desires while we reorient our desires to the set of desires that God has for us. That's the real battlefield is our desires. We never need to doubt God's forgiveness for something we've confessed. Jesus has paid it all, as we love to sing. Second thing, this ties back into what, uh, what David had said and what we'd read in some of the Psalms. We have no need to fear. That seems like a strange promise, but I want to highlight this because of the passage and because of what it, um, what it means. One theologian pointed out that fear is a failure to have humility. Fear is a failure to have humility. And I thought it was really interesting. It's a bit of an odd pairing, but humility is the correct estimation of yourself and who you are in relation to others. It's realizing that your personal and cosmic worth is exactly equal to a Fortune 500 CEO and exactly equal to the homeless person begging this morning on Littleton and Broadway. You are worth no more and no less than those. Every human being bears the image of God and was made individually by God with the intention and the hope that they will know God as their father and that they will know him as their redeemer. How does this affect fear? The armies of Israel trusted in themselves. They had no reason to expect a teenage shepherd boy to be their hero that day. Their hero should have been King Saul, and he was cowering in the tent. They had no confidence in a hero. So they trusted in themselves, pridefully. And they were fearful. But if they trusted that God would bring a hero or defeat the Philistine for him, uh, for them, as he had done countless times, just think of Gideon, the, you know, the horns of Jericho even. If they'd remembered that, they wouldn't have cowered in fear like we saw them do in verse 24. Had they remembered the promises of God that they had, had they had the perspective and understood that God would be their protector, they wouldn't have feared, but they would have had confidence in the Lord. So, fear is the result of our trust being placed in ourselves, whereas confidence is the result of our trust humbly being placed rightly in our king and our God. Developing this a little bit more, though, let's say fear is broken down into two categories. Circumstantial fear and fear of man. Turn with me to, to the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 25. 
very familiar passage. Six twenty-five through 33, I'll read fast. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, nor what about you will put on. This is circumstantial fear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. By the way, he didn't give moral agency to birds. Birds are not the apex of God's creation. And yet, they have no need. God provides for them. That's, and this is the creator. This is Jesus speaking. <laughs> so, um, Are you not of more value than they, he says? I assigned your value, so I know, he's saying. <laughs> Aren't you more valuable than they are? And by which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They, they neither toil nor spin. They don't even have a consciousness. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He's saying, seek first my glory and my relationship with you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. I know this is probably many people's life verse or life passage. And it's something I have to continually remind myself of. God will take care of us. It's our job to pursue the kingdom. That's one of our big rocks. To pursue the kingdom. To pursue Jesus. God will make sure that his servants will have what he deems is enough for the circumstances of their life. We need to have no fear. Let's talk about the fear of man. Maybe we're anxious or fearful about a boss at work or a client. Um, you're fearful about what your mother-in-law thinks about you. I had a boss that used to give me panic attacks. Um, this, is, this is real. You know, what, what your neighbors think of you, what your classmates think of you. Um, you probably stand out. Um, and people probably wonder why, and maybe you're an outcast because of that. It's normal in American society, by the way, now, to shame someone into doing something, using the fear of man to motivate certain behavior. And, and we're not immune to this, obviously. Uh, this doesn't need to be something we have to worry about, though. This is going to seem like a strange passage to turn to for this, but... Uh, go to Isaiah 51. I do want you to turn there if you have a Bible. And if it's your Bible, I want you to underline it. Here it is. 
Isaiah 51, verse 12. This chapter is titled by the editors, The Lord's Comfort for Zion. And this is God speaking to Israel. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down in humility to worship the Lord shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go into the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name, and I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Why are you fearing man? It is I who comfort you. Fearing man is not just a lack of faith. It's an insult to God. It's saying your comfort to me is not enough. Who are we to fear other humans? The most they can do is kill us. What happens when we die? We're united with our maker. (laughs) What did Jesus say? To not fear man who can kill the body, but fear him. Fear God who can kill both the body and put the soul in hell. He brought you into this world and he could take you out. My friends, let us have a healthy, accurate and completely reorienting fear of God. Let's fully reckon with who God is, who we are, and what God says about us, that we are his people. We're his children. And our highest and best thing that we can do in our lives is to live out the gospel and to glorify God by doing so. What does it matter what your neighbor thinks of you or your classmates? Oh, so you won't get into that class or that club or that job. Big whoop. Let me clarify something, though. This is, this is not a call to political activism. It's a call to obedience to the commands of Christ. It's a call to love God and love one another. That was Jesus' summation of the law. Point two in your outline um, is David as exemplar of Christ. Those are the things that we just talked about, ways that we can imitate David. I know it seemed a little far afield from the story maybe, but 
I wanted to show what on earth would motivate a shepherd boy to go fight a nine foot four giant when an entire army, which he was not young enough yet to join, was standing by with their knees shivering. What would motivate him to do that? Those things. Seeing things from God's perspective and having no fear. David as exemplar of Christ. My wife and my mother are both very good amateur calligraphers. When a calligrapher provides a sample of their work before a commission, before they're commissioned to do something, it's kind of like an RFP. They respond to the RFP with an exemplar, uh, just a sample of their work. And David, as we know, was a type of Christ. He lived a life that pointed in many ways to Jesus so that Israel would be able to see Jesus coming. And David probably was the person throughout history who, uh, who was the most pervasive exemplar of Christ or who reflected the most types of Christ's um, in his life. But throughout the Old Testament, Paul, Paul knew this. He loved writing this. He saw this in Adam as a type of Christ. He saw it in Noah. He saw it in Abraham. He saw it in Jonah. He saw it in Boaz, many others. There were other types of Christs, but David is probably the strongest. They all pointed to Jesus. David was from Bethlehem, which, as we know, is where Jesus was born. David was a shepherd by trade, and Jesus called himself the good shepherd. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be regarded as nothing by men and looked at with derision. Just in our story today, David was chewed out by even his own brothers, accused of wanting to spectate, leaving the, leaving the uh, sheep alone in the wilderness because he just wanted to watch the battle. Nevertheless, David served his brothers, bringing them food from home, and they cursed him for it. Just as Jesus served Israel and blessed his people only to be rejected and killed by them. There's a few, few ways that David typified Christ. But as we kind of come to a close, I want to look at this story and the typology that David exemplifies here a little closer. This true story of David and Goliath was both a way for David to be launched into national prominence after his uh, anointing by Samuel in the, in the last chapter. And it was a preview of what Jesus would do as Messiah. The setting is God's chosen people being taunted by a giant clad in scales, which is meant to convey his appearance as a serpent or reptile, or dragon. This dragon has his forces lined up behind him, and he wants to take on the hero of God's chosen people one-on-one. And he taunts the camp for 40 days. 40 days is, about, is the amount of time that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. It's about the amount of time humans can survive without food. The dragon was tormenting the people of God for as long as could be tolerated. 
So our hero steps forward. His king approves of his surely deadly task and sends him. Our hero puts on what everyone else was wearing. But before battling the dragon, he puts it off. He had worn it long enough, and he knew from the beginning that one could not defeat this dragon in the usual garb. But having worn the garb, he knew what his people were feeling and could identify with them. He puts it off, though, and he selects as his weapon a stone. The dragon, watching our hero put off his garb, believes he is one. But our hero knows that the dragon could only be defeated by a smooth, round stone. Defeated, the dragon lies on the ground, awaiting the final death blow from our hero, which will do away with him for good. The army of the people of God watch as the dragon's legions begin to flee. And it is their duty and commandment to chase them down and expand the reign of God's people throughout the region and be fighting and defeating the enemy for the glory of God. This is David's story, and it is Jesus' story, and it is our story. We are the people of God, unable to defeat Satan. We need a hero, a Messiah, to defeat him for us. Friends, we're not David in this story. We are the helpless army who needs a hero. But this is our story. The truth is that we're not the main character in our own story. But if you're here today and you're looking at life like it's a nine-foot-tall barbarian ready to tear you to shreds, know that you do have a hero. But that hero's victory will only be applied to you if you enlist in that hero's army. And it's open enrollment. So come and give your life to the care and protection of the only hero truly worthy of worship. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. The closer we look at your word, the more beautiful it is. The more we know of you, the more beautiful you are. The more difficult life becomes, and the taller and more uglier our opponents become, the more crucial your heroism is to us. Lord, remind us of this as we go about our weeks. Bless us as we meditate on your word. In your son's name we pray, amen.